my name's Heather Sherd, and uh, I guess I first discovered the, these women when I was um, doing my PhD thesis, which was on Dr. Vera Scantlebury Brown, which you, who you have probably haven't heard of, but should have, like I should have. Um, she was the first director of infant welfare in Victoria and from 1926 to 1946 and largely responsible for the very professional, universal and free baby, sorry, maternal and child health centre system that we have in Victoria. It's a, it's a unique system uh, and she's very much um, uh, responsible for the, the professional way that it's presented today. And my co-author is Dr Ruth Lee, so she might like to say where her background is. Thanks, Heather. Um, I also came across stories of women doctors being in World War I, which completely floored me because I hadn't realised how much I'd assumed that, of course, they never were there. never occurred to me that they could be there. Um, I was also doing my PhD at Deakin University about Dr Mary de Garris and she was Geelong's first and only female doctor from 1919 to 1941 and she kept working after that, dying in 1963. And I was um, doing some tutoring at Melbourne University and a colleague, a mutual colleague of ours, Dr David Nichols, suggested, oh, you should talk to Heather. I said, Heather, okay. I hadn't met Heather at that point. And then I found a letter written in Mary de Garris's papers, Mary de Garris to Dr Vera Scantlebury, and I thought, right, I've got to give this to Heather. And that's how we met, about five or six years ago, yeah. I think, Heather. Yeah. yeah. Now, before we launch into some more details about the book, I would ask... Heather and Ruth, just for a brief synopsis, because you have a book in front of you, it has a title, but I think it's worth just saying briefly what the book is about before we go into the details of how and when and what the First World War is quite a long way away, and faced with the First Trump War, um, I think there are other ways of looking at, at the book as well. Sure. Um, well... When the war broke out in August uh, 1914, there were around 130 women doctors who were registered in Australia as medical practitioners. And, uh, of course, in the Empire, in Britain and um, in New Zealand and in Canada, there were many more. And, um, of course, they wanted to serve. Immediately, their inclination was to serve just as their male colleagues were doing. And in fact, 26 uh, Australian women doctors did end up serving in the war as surgeons, as medical officers, as pathologists and as anaesthetists. Um, but wherever they went to try and enlist, whether they attempted that in New Zealand or in Sydney or in Britain, the answer was the same everywhere. And they were told that no, women doctors were not required in the war. If they wanted to enlist, they could enlist as nurses if they wanted to, but they definitely were not wanted as, as female doctors. So the result of that means that they, they've had no real official records and certainly very little official recognition. And that's made them quite um, invisible over the last uh, 100 years. So this is one of the reasons, the main reason, I suppose, for us trying to write this book to... Um, to tell their story and to have their voices heard, even though it is over 100 years now since the beginning of the war. 
Um, in the past, we have had women's histories, uh, women's histories written as a series of portraits or vignettes of women. But what I was very keen to do with this book was to place the doctors in the context of the war um, so that to see where they were as the war unfolded. So when you look at the book, it's in five parts. So it's in each year is, uh, is a separate um, chapter. Um, and um, it was an attempt to place the women in the narrative. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, because, mostly because um, most of the women didn't write very much about their experiences and most of them didn't marry, so they didn't have children who would keep some of those family letters um, and so on. So often it was a matter of trying to read sideways and find um, nursing accounts or um, even soldiers' accounts um, to try and, and gain the information that we could so that we could sort of say what was happening to them on a day-to-day -day basis, which we were trying to do. So that was my job, um, to write that narrative and to insert the doctors into it. And then that's about a half to two-thirds of the book. And the other part of the book are individual biographies of the doctors, and that was Ruth's job although she also wrote the section of the book about Ostrovo and Serbia because that's where her Dr Mary Degaris, we always call them my doctor, her doctor, um, was placed um, during, during the First World War. So Ruth can talk, you, talk to you about the work, her work on the biographies. Okay. Um, yes, now I just need to say that I was saying to Heather, you want to do what? You want to write 26 what people were doing a blow-by-blow blow account, she said, of what was happening during the war, and I was thinking, no, there's no way we can do this. <laughs> but Heather did that, and um, yes, we consulted along the way, and we got a structure nutted out. Um, but once that was done, it did seem a pity to me if we didn't then finish off what happened to these women for the rest of their lives because most of them went on to make major contributions, particularly to women's health, but the medical profession generally. So um, we gleaned together sources. And of course, um, we're very fortunate because both Mary de Garris and Vera Scantlebury wrote copiously and their families, the descendants kept their records um, Mary de Garris says about 12 boxes in the family papers. It was just a historian's dream. And Vera Scantlebury was a wonderful diary writer. So, but a number of the other women, there's hardly a trace. So Heather was very diligent finding lots of that. Um, we also used, well, university records were becoming more accessible the women's colleges where the women, early women doctors trained did start publishing, going through their records with the centenary of World War I. So they were putting up websites, which helped a lot. Um, we also used Trove extensively. If any of you are researching family histories or where, whatever you're researching, Trove as part of the National Library, it's a free accessible database and up will come photos, journal articles, book chapters, you name it, the whole lot will be there within seconds. 
and news, every newspaper mention of the person. So that, that was a wonderful source for compiling short biographies about the women and other records put out by medical professional bodies, obituaries, that sort of thing. So we included those at the end of the book, particularly keeping in mind um, while a lot of the women didn't have families themselves, well, children, they did have um, siblings, nephews, nieces, and there are a lot of um, relatives who are still um, sometimes surprised to read about their ancestor in the book. So that's why we included that. So we'll, we'll have a look at um, the first of these slides. Um, um, can, I, can I just interrupt one sure. more time? It's, just, it's the grimmest of topics that so, uh, surgeons and doctors in the war and the patients and the privations and the hardship and the rats and the mice and the trenches and yet there's quite a lot of, not humour, but irony and, and there's a sense of something else besides that. How did you deal with trying to not just make it a story of privation and suffering and hardship and survival, but something where there is much more of a, a spirit of not just the women, but others involved in, in this really important part that doesn't get the same coverage as frontline fighting. Yeah, I think um, that was that underlined the importance of the material that Ruth was talking about, the diary letters, diary letters that Vera Scantlebury wrote home. She wasn't a great writer, but she did manage to fill 2,000 pages of diary letters um, in her two years, and also Mary DeGaris's papers and Eleanor Bourne's papers up in, um, which are only small, but up in Brisbane, and um, Laura Fowler-Hope's papers over in Adelaide. And that really gave us the, the human side to things. So, and we're going to hear some quotes in a minute directly from those books, but for example, um, Vera Scantleby wrote home to her family in the first six months that she really, she really felt she was going under, that, that military surgery was horrible and uh, that she, she thought it was beyond her capabilities and her knowledge, but she did keep going. And you can see that gradual change over time in her diary from a very, I suppose, in a way, frightened and lack, uh, unconfident um, young woman. She was only 27 years old. Um, to somebody who could cope with um, amputation, for example, um, and cope with that sort of horrendous work and her concern and worry over the, the young soldiers that she was looking after, that she might lose a soldier overnight and how worried she was about that. So I think the way to deal with it really was to, to look at that material. But we also, for example, I'm sure most of you will have heard of Vera Britton, and her um, Testament of Youth, for example, was a wonderful book to, to look at how people felt about what was going on around them at the time. So does that sort of answer your question? Good start. <laughs> oh, God. Gee, thanks. How long have we got? <laughs> so we might look at... They're still here. They're still here. So we might look... Um, just look a little minute... These are the only photos that we have. These are eight of the women, and these are the only photos that we have of the women in uniform. And um, 
you'll note that there are a variety of uniforms here um, from a variety of organisations. We're going to talk about the voluntary um, effort that was made, which was the, the main way, the voluntary hospitals were the main ways that the women actually got to serve since they couldn't um, serve officially. It's, there's also an interesting photograph here because the one in the middle, sort of in the middle, with the only man in the picture, that's Dr Vera Scantlebury and next to her is her younger brother, Dr Clifford Scantlebury. They were roughly the same rank, but you'll notice that um, he is wearing all the badges of his rank. She is wearing none because women were not never officially enlisted, even though they were employed, they weren't officially enlisted and therefore they were not allowed to wear any badges of rank on the uniform. Um, so, um, but there's quite a range of uniforms there. In the beginning, the women had to design their own uniforms because um, there were none for, for women doctors. Um, Heather, I'll just mention the other man in the photo there. It was a Serbian colonel. Oh, beg your pardon. Um, next to Mary de Garris. Sorry, I forgot him. <laughs> so, it's not a point about uniforms, but... <laughs> That photo is a very rare one. I only ever found three photos of Mary in World War One, and she's the small, petite person next to the Serbian colonel because she was working under the Serbian army. But we'll get to you further later. So, this advertisement um, I found uh, several years ago in the Common Cause, which was the suffragette newspaper, and I, I just loved it because. Um, it's actually, uh, it's actually showing there the uniform that one of the doctors in the previous slide had on. And I do love... Can you read the bottom bit of that or is it too small? It says... Um, I don't know if I can read it. If you cannot visit, if you cannot visit us, send a good-fitting coat and we guarantee a smart-fitting costume in any style. So you could literally have any kind of uniform that you wanted, but she is wearing the Scottish Women's Hospital one with the tartan rosette on her, Gordon tartan rosette on her hat and on the tabs as well. Now, what we're going to do is to look at three of the places that these women served in, and we also have a little quote from each of those places to read to you. So the first one, um, the Scottish Women's Hospital was set up, it was Dr Elsie Ingalls' idea, a Scottish woman doctor, obviously, and she was supported by the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. Now, what enabled the Australian women and all most women doctors to serve in the war was that the suffragette movement decided that this really was an opportunity for them to demonstrate that they could, uh, that they were worthy of being citizens because um, British women didn't have the vote when the war broke out. Australian women did, but not did, but not in England. And so they made um, use of the war in that way to demonstrate their capabilities. Um, the Scottish Women's Hospital sent 14 mobile units across Europe um, and they established this um, stationary hospital at an abbey, a 13th century Cistercian abbey, which was about, it's about 40 kilometres from north of Paris. Um, and this hospital existed throughout the war from early 1915 right, to, to, right through to early 1919. Um, and the, the Australian doctor who worked there was called Dr Elsie Dayell. 
She was an absolutely brilliant pathologist. She had been the first Australian women, woman to win the BEAT scholarship, which she took up, which was very prestigious and only given to um, doctors who had achieved first-class honours right across the final year of their medical degree, which she had done. Uh, and she was in London when the war broke out, um, researching at the Lister Institute. She went straight to the war office and was basically told to go away. Um, so she enlisted with the Scottish Women's Hospital. Uh, she arrived in February 1916 and um, she wrote quite a bit about her time there and particularly about the two weeks after the 1st of July when the Battle of the Somme began. Um, and she, so this is what John's going to read um, something about her writing of her work at the time. They took 300 cases in the first two weeks. So she says, there have been simply awful days and nights. I hear the poor people in the operating theatre cleaning up madly. A swab of every wound is taken immediately on admission and sent instantly to the laboratory. I examine them on the instant, did 180 in three days, and a bacteriological report was dispatched within about half an hour. All the gas gangrene cases were sorted out by these means and the incipient cases were spotted at once and operated according to the severity of the infection as notified by me. By that means we saved lots of limbs. So many proved to have early gas formation at the bottom of a deep, narrow shell wound that it would certainly be fatal to leave them. They would probably have lost a limb, if not life. So far we have had only three deaths and we had 112 bad cases of gas gangrene without stopping. So gas gangrene was an enormous problem. It, it's not your everyday gangrene. It's quite something quite different. And it's a kind of infection that can kill you within about 48 hours. And we're talking about a time when there was no penicillin, no antibiotics. So the, the, um, the treatment of those infections was something very crucial to many soldiers' lives. And Roymont in particular um, specialised in trying to um, diagnose uh, gas gangrene. This was often very difficult because of the number of um, shrapnel wounds that many soldiers, um, um, happened to many soldiers. So they might come in not just with one or two, but within several, um, couple of dozen shrapnel injuries and they had to track down, try and track down the infection in each of those, um, those wounds. So this second hospital, again, is, um, was started by two suffragettes, Dr Flora Murray and Dr Louisa Garrett-Anderson. Um, they were quite militant suffragettes. Um, Louisa Garrett-Anderson had been jailed for throwing a brick through a window. Um, Dr Flora Murray was the official doctor for the suffragettes at the time. And they were certainly keen to take on this opportunity they opened a 560-bed hospital in an old workhouse in Covent Garden in Endell Street in London. And if you want a comparison uh, size-wise, the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Melbourne is about a 390-bed hospital. So this was an extremely large hospital. The War Office thought that it wouldn't last six months and, in fact, they ran the hospital for four years and they treated over 26,000 soldiers in that time. They, you can see, this is um, August 1916. 
there are actually three Australian women doctors in the front row, the, that front row seated there. Um, most of them are the doctors. Uh, does my pointer allow me to have a little, does it have a little, um, what do you call it? Yeah, that little star button. Oh yes, there we are. <laughs> so that person there is Dr. Eleanor Bourne from Queensland. Um, that woman is Dr. Rachel Champion from Melbourne. And the woman sitting next, sitting next to her is Dr. Elizabeth Hamilton Brown from Sydney. And both Rachel and Elizabeth were apparently extremely good surgeons. Um, shortly after, all of the men except the Sarge, Sarge, Sergeant Major in that photograph um, were taken away from the hospital, partly because they needed more men at the front, but mostly because the women had demonstrated within 12 months that they could run the hospital on their own, that they didn't need um, the men to, um, to help them at all. Um, and, that, and on the bottom part of the screen is, um, is Francis Dodd's sketch in 1918 of the operating theatre. Um, I have... Oops, here it is. I have a couple of quotes for, for this particular hospital. And these are from um, Dr. Vera Scantlebury's diary. The first one is written of, four, um, of the event at 4am on May the 6th, 1917. So it was her first week in the job. And the convoys usually came in in the early hours of the morning and they came directly from um, Victoria Station. She says, the scene in the hospital courtyard was rather impressive. It was very early morning and not quite dark. The ambulance girls and stretcher bearers were lined up waiting on one side and the night sister stood on the other with her lantern. The sergeant major, and in brackets, a man, dodged about. Then came the ambulances. Silently, the stretcher bearers were lifted down from the motors, which held four and a nurse. I had a great feeling of pity, a fellow feeling. Um, and then in January 1918, she attempted to describe the, the OR and she, she calls it that beehive of an operating theatre with its hot stifling atmosphere and white gowned and hooded women moving ceaselessly about and stretchers pushed hither and thither and the sweet, heavy, sickly fumes of chloroform. So the third... Um, place that we're going to look at where the women served, and this is, this is Dr Ruth's specialty, um, is Ostrovo. Um, as I said before, the Scottish Women's Hospital sent 14 mobile units right across France, but mostly on the Eastern Front, where they were gladly accepted, um, particularly by the Serbian army. Um, and this, this place, Ostrovo, Lake Ostrovo, is now called Lake Varagita, and it's in northern Macedonia. And they went there because the Serbs were endeavouring to get back into their country by fighting the battle for Monastir over the mountains. So I'll let Ruth talk about this section. Yeah. Thanks, Heather. Um, oh, so you have a quote too, don't you? Sorry? <laughs> you have a quote as well. Yes. Well, I'll get to that. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, so this camp, there were three Australian women doctors who were working at the camp with some of the British women as well. And Dr Agnes Bennett was the first um, chief medical officer and she was responsible for 
making sure this huge convoy of supplies was shipped out from London through the Mediterranean to Salonika, which was the base for a lot of those organisations, including a base where nearly 3,000 Australian nurses were stationed in World War I. So on reaching Salonika, then it was very rough roads, unmade roads over mountainous um, areas up to the lake where they were to establish a 200-bed tent hospital. And you can see from the photos, they were huge tents with wooden floors and they held, um, I think it was 10 um, beds in each tent. So the hospital wards were in the tents, as were the staff. Um, Agnes Bennett was very large, um, tall person, very, seemed very fit and strong. And she lasted, I think, for at least over two years as the chief medical officer there. Um, malaria was endemic, so there were approximately, I think, 200 um, beds and then up to about 50 staff, virtually all women, except for a lot of local um, Serbian men, elderly men who would be the helpers doing some of the heavy lifting and things. Um, Mary de Garris... Um, soon joined her. Well, first of all, it was Lillian Cooper, um, Dr Lillian Cooper from Brisbane. She, um, she was incredibly brave. She was in her mid-50s and she um, ran the dressing station, which was halfway up the mountains. The fighting was on the other side of the mountain range and Agnes Bennett decided they needed to treat this um, wounded very quickly, which they did at this dressing station in small tents way up on this very rocky plain. And Lillian Cooper and her friend, um, lifelong companion Mary Bedford, she ran the um, ambulance transport column and was called Miss Spare Parts. So, but eventually Lillian and Mary... Um, well, Lillian and Miss Spareparts left. Lillian became very unwell with pneumonia. And Agnes Bennett had to leave as well due to malaria. So all repatriated back to London and then back to Australia. Mary de Garris was then appointed as the CMO for the next 15 or so months. So um, Mary wrote, well... I found very few sources in Mary's papers about the war, which was quite a mystery, until I went to the archives of the Scottish Women's Hospitals, which are in the Mitchell Library, Glasgow, and here were boxes of Mary's typed letters. She obviously had her typewriter and would sit in her tent every night and write the equivalent of us sending emails off to the administrators in um, Edinburgh the Scottish Women's Hospitals. So, um, okay, so let's cut to the chase. Here's some quotes about Mary. And we had had some wonderful observations by Miles Franklin, 
who volunteered as a, an orderly and worked as a cook for six months while Mary was in charge. And her um, very, she wrote some very humorous accounts of life in the camp, but her diary told quite a different story about how tough it was physically there with wasps and earwigs and wolves and malaria and mosquitoes. Um, people having surgeons operating in the snow, wearing fur coats, etc. It was very tough. Anyway, we have two accounts of Mary at work from my book. So I just read one. The first, on one occasion, she, this was Mary de Garris, and Australian nurses Angel and Saunders were operating in a tent to extract a bullet from the back of a soldier's pallet. They carried on calmly while others scurried into funk holes. Agnes Bennett wrote, only those who know what it is to have bombs falling all around them can realise what an amount of presence of mind and courage such a thing takes. So Mary became known for her coolness and bravery under fire. And staff felt very safe with her because of those qualities. But she could also be quite decisive and authoritarian, which some staff felt, I guess there were a few disagreements, um, but it was, they were under the control of the Serbian military and were in a war, let me say. So Mary's decisiveness she, and her lack of consultation um, probably would have been hard to take otherwise, but in those circumstances, I guess I feel it was quite justified. Anyway, getting on back to that point about humour in the camp, um, Mary described um, they had concerts, they had dinners, there were other male camps around within close proximity. Um, males of various nationalities would come, um, people would perform music, they'd do folk dancing, um, a lot of the stuff got to know words, language in Serbian. Um, and on Christmas Eve, they'd have dress-up parties and there's a photo of that there. And I think that was to do with the intensity of the experiences in the war, dealing with a lot of suffering and deaths, but also a lot of intense pleasures. And they were able to go horse riding, miles wandered around the country with friends, um, hitchhiking um, on her days off. So there was a lot of freedom, actually, within the ebb and flow of the battles and the wounded coming in. Anyway, so here's... Was, was, sorry, was, was that because they weren't in beholden to anybody? Like they, they were independent from They the were military. relatively, yes, yes. So they didn't, they didn't go AWL as a soldier would because no. they weren't soldiers. True, but there was discipline was enforced in the camp. But but within the camp, not from the organisation. That's right. Yes. Not from male establishment. No, but they were answerable via the CMO to the Serbian colonels. 
But the Serbians were incredibly grateful too for those women being there. And so they weren't likely to make conditions untenable yes. for the women as well. Quite supportive, in fact. Um, so here's Miles Franklin's description of Mary at work. Once in the earlier days of the unit, while a serious operation was proceeding in the little operating tent of the advanced dressing station, the bombs began to rain. The men assistants promptly disappeared to their funk holes, but Doctor continued her operation, occasionally remarking very politely to the sister who stayed with her that she was sorry. She supposed sister would like to have a look at what was going on outside, but the patient had to be attended to or he would bleed to death. So, camp life was entertaining a lot of pathos, a lot of tragedy and a lot of suffering and hardship, but very tough. And, but um, your point, John, also, the relative freedom the women had, because they were volunteers, in a way they were lucky. They could choose when to leave. The nurses who were enlisted in the Australian Army were there for the duration of the war and suffered post-traumatic stress and untold other difficulties after the war and probably connected to that length of service. Mary lasted about 20 months all up. Um, and as I say, it was unusual for anybody to stay four years. Agnes took time out, but she did then come back into World War I. So she was probably did last four years, but it was on her terms, which made a huge difference, I think. Well, I think we're ready for questions, either from John or from the audience. Well, I've, I've got another question and I've got the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, it, it is called the Extraordinary Australian Women Doctors of the Great War and I've asked you this question before but um, the separation, it, to what degree did they see themselves as, as Australian or like a lot of society at that time and these women came from a particular part of society, the fact that they could qualify as doctors, to what degree did they identify with Australia or, like many others, just identify with the glorious empire? Mm. Um, because we're limited in, in remin written reminiscences of their time, um, we're not quite sure of the answer to that. I know that in Vera's diary she saw herself very much as Australian. Certainly their education was based on British history and I think Australians still saw them saw themselves as a, a vital part of the British Empire. But she very much saw herself as an Australian doctor there um, and she only mentions the empire a couple of times and it's in relation to just being in London and being in the heart of the empire. But her focus was on the soldiers and not really on, on serving the empire at all. I think it was purely as a, as a doctor, seeing that her duty was to relieve suffering. And so she didn't really, I don't think she really saw it much at all as an as a activity for empire 
Um, I don't know, Ruth, what about you? Um, Mary de Garris's father was very patriotic and a friend of Alfred Deakin's. And I think for a lot of upper-class Australians, empire was like the wallpaper. Um, it was an unquestionable kind of thing and people were very happy that Australia was attached to the most powerful empire in the world at that time. Um, but again, I think um, both for Agnes and Mary, um, they were also very conscious that this was a tremendous opportunity, and Vera too, um, for women doctors to work as surgeons and to be trained and get, gain experience that was completely denied to them back home. So there's a real mixture, I guess, of ideologies of feminism, patriotism, service in medicine and humanitarianism because they had fiancés, brothers who were in the war and wanting to, you know, bear the same burden as they were doing. So it's very hard to separate, you know, which was a stronger one. But they did, you know, war fortunately and unfortunately um, presented incredible opportunities for them to transgress their traditional roles. Um, as one of them said that, you know, if you miss the war, you miss, was it Heather, life itself? Uh, reality. reality. If, you, if yeah. you miss the war, you miss reality itself. Mm. Yeah. So, very hard to untangle all those motivations. Um, I can continue, but uh, does anybody have any questions before I continue to hog the floor? David. Dave. Uh, none. <laughs> um, look, uh, I don't have any quotes from the Australian doctors themselves, but one of the British doctors, a Scottish doctor, who um, performed, who acted as a surgeon throughout the war, she said that it was the highlight of, of her life, um, her time as a surgeon. And, of course, they, um, there was very little specialisation then. It was only just started in, starting in medicine. So they did everything, every surgical procedure that you could possibly think of, they did them all. Um, but she said that she knew she would get nowhere by trying when she came back from the war. And that certainly was the case um, when they returned back um, to Australia. Um, they just there was just no access again for them to gain the hospital positions they needed to gain if they were going to act as surgeons. Um, my doctor, Vera, she wanted to be a paediatrician, um, but she could not, even though she was the senior medical registrar when she left um, to go overseas at the children's hospital, she could not get back into the hospital as an honorary consultant, which is what you needed to do in order to develop a specialty in surgery or paediatrics. Uh, and that was pretty much the same experience for any of the women who tried to access 
particularly what Flora Murray called the, the professional prizes of medicine. They just could not gain access to, to those hospital boards. So even though they had extensive experience, um, the surgical side of it anyway remained um, relatively unused after the war. So it's, it's a sad story, really. So, so, so what did they do? They, <laughs> to a great extent, they, um, they went back into the areas that they were in before the war. So they tended to go into public health. So, for example, Vera couldn't be a, a paediatrician, so she became the first director of infant welfare. So, as Ruth said before, they made incredible contributions and they really valued their experience for Vera working with a completely woman-run hospital, showed her very clearly what women could do if they were given the opportunity. So they did benefit, um, but they sort of, um, I suppose they were moved sideways really into, into areas like public health. Some of them, like Mary de Garis, of course, developed their own private practices, but she also made an incredible contribution in um, maternal health in terms of the Geelong Hospital. So basically they went sideways. Not that I know of, no. Well, just one, one example, though, that the treatment of New Zealand doctors, that, that, that they could join the... They actually got recognised, didn't they? The, I thought they became... They were allowed to wear the uniform. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> What's your, your book? No, I thought I read... <laughs> no, <but laughs> you I, mean after the war or during the war? During. I thought the Australian doctors couldn't join the military in any way, so they just served independently, but the New Zealanders actually did were no. allowed to wear the uniform and, did, and were awarded medals after the war. No, so, no? same, same uh, treatment. Uh, in, um, late in 1918, the government said they could wear RAMC badges if they wanted to, so that was the Royal Army Military Corps. So in the photographs we showed before, Vera actually has RAMC badges on her uniform. Now, the women at Endell Street took that to mean they could wear the rank as well. So out came the, the needle and thread and they furiously stitched on the, I don't know what you call them, you know, the stripes that they have on their uniform and the buttons and the whole lot. And within about 48 hours, they were told that they were to remove them immediately. So out came the scissors and they had to remove them all. But in between, one of the doctors came back to the hospital and said that she didn't know what to do. She'd been saluted three times and she had no idea whether to salute back or, or what to do. So that, that um, they were never... Um, yeah, so they were, they were allowed to put those badge, RAMC badges on their uniform. And, and you're right, they could, they could wear an RAMC uniform, but... The RAMC didn't have women, women uniforms for women, so it was still a matter of um, adaptation, really. Yeah. I'm just wondering too. I've lost my my technical man. Can I see you down there? I'm just wondering if we could, if you could help while we're doing this to find that other video for me, if it's possible. Thank you. So we'll keep going. Stephen, a question.
want to answer that, Ruth? I don't have a strong sense, um, other than we had the head of the Victorian Medical Women's Society mm. come when we did a Melbourne presentation, and she really drew out the relevance, actually, parallels that she could see okay. to current situations with women perhaps struggling to get into surgery and and the conditions that make it so difficult for women to have families and become surgeons. Um, but that's... It, I think, I'm not um, sure how far it's Yeah, gone. I think in Victoria there is quite a lot of interest because Victorian... Uh, women doctors were the first ones to form their own uh, medical association, um, which is still very strong today. So they came, um, several of them came to the to the Melbourne launch. Um, in New South Wales, it's interesting because the, the women's medical is part of the AMA up there, and so there hasn't been quite as much response. I'm not, I'm not sure why. Um, but it's not easy to... Um, to make contact with the women. We do it through the association and certainly their, um, their president, the Victorian Medical Women's Society president, was thrilled to be asked to actually launch the book in Melbourne. So they are interested. It's just a, a matter of getting the message out there. Um, we have rather... A, we're hoping it'll work, <laughs> but this little tiny video is only about a minute and a half um, and it was made in 1918, so it's 101 years old. It was made by the French army and the, the abbey that I spoke about before, Roymont, in um, just north of Paris, they, um, a bit like Agnes Bennett, they felt they needed a forward dressing station near the railhead where the, where the wounded men were coming in. So they set it up at a little village called Villers-Cotterets um, in 1916, and that's what... Uh, they look a little bit like penguins um, being 101 years old. We'll see if we can get it to work. So the woman walking down the middle there is, is Dr Frances Evans. She was the commanding officer um, of Royalmont throughout the war. So they're taking a wounded soldier to the surgery. And so far, this is the only piece of, um, of film that we know of, of, um, of an operation actually being undertaken. And that's a mobile X-ray um, cart that they have. Scottish women's had their own, but also Dr Marie Curie drove all around France the battlefields with her own um, mobile X-ray cart. Lunchtime.
these guys think being filmed's hilarious. I mean. The all important male. <laughs> And in the last few seconds is just a short view of the doctors and nurses at the time. And there was always a dog. Okay. My last question. Your last question or somebody's last question. Oh, another one. Kerry. Kerry. Yes. Um, well, one, I'm really generalising because from one case which has been documented um, in Kitty's War by Janet Baker, um, I've forgotten Kitty's surname, she was in the war, Kit McNaughton, <laughs> yeah. Um, her life after the war was quite sad and a lot of physical ailments and photos of her show her that she suffered a lot. So, um, yes, I guess I'm generalising. In my research, no, but what Janet Baker has found and other research, there was very little support for the nurses when they returned, as with the servicemen. But, um, you know, psychiatry was made great advances in World War I, but it was still in its infancy. So um, nurses weren't treated as well as returned servicemen, put it that way. And that is documented in a lot of studies, but I haven't done a lot of personal research in that. Mm. I think in um, in Vera's diaries, there was there were some letters that she wrote, not many, but there were a couple that she wrote in 1921. And she was away from work for about six months. And the letters that she wrote home, I, I can't say for sure, but reading between the lines, I don't think she was physically ill. I think she may have had a period at that time when it all started to come back to her and she was quite ill for about six months and her family sent her off to sort of have a bit of a trip around Tasmania at the time. And I think it was... Um, I suspect it was psychological rather than physical. And, of course, the whole communication with people was the, the stiff upper lip, you know, not admitting to anything at all at that time. During the war, Craig Lock the Craig Lockhart Hospital specialised in um, trying to, um, to deal with men who were so shocked by what had happened to them. And they began the process of, um, of believing that talking about the experience, about what you'd been gone through, 
um, would help you, but it wasn't generally accepted um, across, across medicine at that time. So very early days for any sort of treatment of the psychological effects of warfare, unfortunately. So the book, the book fills in a wonderful gap in the history of the First World War and lots of people do that when we need to revisit our history with, with the eyes of the present. I just wonder for the reader that it's not just a, um, an historical correction, but you must have reflected, both of you, when you were writing the state of women in society today and, and whether women... Um, do um, if they're good enough they'll achieve well and if they're not they'll stay in their place until they do. I, I just wonder how, how much does the book inform us about the present? Um, well look I'm really hoping it will inspire any younger people who might read it. I don't know how far it will permeate um, with young or Echo with younger women. We did have one very positive review by quite a young reviewer. Um, yes, I guess that's all I can say at this point. But um, it does reveal how women can be made invisible. And I hope that's a message that could be taken from our book that women need to, I guess, make sure that that doesn't keep happening in the future, what has happened to these women. Their stories were lost. Um, and I guess that's for other groups in society as well, that it's important to keep, keep going, not give up, I guess, the struggle to take equal roles in society and not be left um, left behind. In terms of medical women, I think that in surgery only about 10% of surgeons are women and I suspect that's not because women don't make good surgeons. Um, I do know that... Um, one of the members of the Victorian Medical Women's Society is quite young, I think she's about 29, and she's married and has a, a three-year-old. And as far as I know, she's the first woman to be able to persuade a hospital to give her a part-time position as a, a registrar. That's a first. So this is 2019. But the institutional arrangements for the medical field are still very much based on a, a model that's very difficult um, for women in particular. So I think there's still a, a very long way to go and we certainly hope that this, if people read this book that it'll be of some assistance in that regard. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you both very much. We hope it's like dominoes rather than a rolling stone. But, um, so thank the audience very much for being so patient thank you, yes. and, and listening and not being as difficult with the questions as I am. And thank, thank you both very much for not just today, but for the book, which I really do think is a, a wonderful piece of work, both in research and the fact that you can read it and enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.